John chapter 7, we're going to really take a quick overview of verse 14 to verse 36 today, so about 13 verses or so. And as we look at these verses, excuse me, uh, 20, uh, four, 23 verses, uh, as we look at these verses, there are three groups of people that are in view. And the reason this is important is there is a singular question, the answer to which will determine where you will spend eternity. Who is Jesus? You see, if you were to talk to almost every major religion on the face of the earth, talk to a Buddhist, Jesus was a great teacher. Talk to a Muslim, Jesus was a prophet. Talk to virtually anybody about Jesus, and they'll say, well, he was a great guy, he lived 2,000 years ago, and they will know something about him. But there is only one way to understand Jesus that's meaningful, and that is he exactly who he declared himself to be. Therefore, he is God's only son. He is the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. You see, the gospel is extremely exclusive. Me, personally, as a human being, I wish it were not so. I wish that you could wake up and worship your doorknob and still go to heaven. But you won't. I wish that Allah and Yahweh were the same person, but they're not. I I wish that there were some other way that you could come into a right relationship with the one true God... But there is not. And so Jesus is about to begin this ministry in the temple where he is going to make this exclusivity very clear to some prominent Jewish religious leaders. And he's going to force them to come to terms with the question. And so here's why, for this morning, this is ultra important to us. Before us, we have the communion elements. There are two. There is the bread and there is the cup. Together they represent the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the only way that anyone can see God. Without him, Jesus himself said, no one will see God. There isn't an alternate path. There's not another way. And so as we dig into these verses, which we'll summarize today and look at in detail next week, we are leading up to a time at the communion table. So for you, if you're here, maybe you're visiting with us, and you might be wondering what the ordinance of communion is about. It is for us who know the Lord Jesus personally, as a time which he himself said to us, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. So we are remembering what we have professed to be true, and that is Jesus Christ is my Savior, 
and my Lord. And the only way that happens is because his body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. And I have believed by faith, resulting in grace, which has given me forgiveness and cleansed me from my sin. So as we celebrate, if you've not asked Jesus into your heart, please do so. I've just presented the gospel to you in a very simple way. You need to believe that He is who He says He is. You need to answer the questions asked here with Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. I believe that He died on Calvary's cross and His shed blood is sufficient to cleanse me of my sin. And by faith, I trust Him for my salvation. But if you choose not to, please allow the communion elements to pass you by. Just simply don't partake of them because they're not for you. The supper is serious. It's for the body of Christ. And so just allow them to go by. I would pray you wouldn't do that. I would pray you would receive and believe. This study, which will summarize is a debate about Jesus. It will involve three groups of people, and we'll look at them in detail next time. But before we dig in, would you pray with me? And let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Father, thank You for the privilege of being able to come and study Your Word and read it and understand it. You authored it by the Holy Spirit that we might be able to know You. And so, God, as we study Your Word... Would you give us clear meaning of what you intend us to know? And God, I pray for anyone that's here that maybe does not know you today, that they would receive you as their Savior and Lord and be saved. Father, we thank you for loving us so richly that you would send your own Son into this world to die for our sins. And we celebrate you today, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Verse 14, John chapter 7. And a little bit of an overview. And now about the middle of the feast, which remember, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, seven-day feast with an eighth day of joy added on to the end of it. So the middle of the feast, maybe the fourth day, third day, fifth day, but the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now imagine, lock that in because this is an important part of the context here. Jesus is going to the very place where the Jewish people believed that they got right with God. And that was the temple. And he is about to pronounce that he himself is God again, which he's already done twice. And he's going to do it in the midst of a whole bunch of Jewish people and Jewish religious leaders. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters? In other words, how does he know the, the language of the Scriptures, having never studied? He didn't have a degree. He was not studied under a great rabbi. He himself was declared to be one, but he had no credentials of any kind as far as the Jewish people were concerned. And Jesus answered them and said, well, that's because my doctrine is not mine. but is his who sent me. He's already declared himself that he and his father were one. He's already spoken the truth that he was in fact the I am. 
So he's made the statement, these things that I'm saying, God is speaking to you. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You see, the Jewish religious leaders, the rabbis, got their authority from other Jewish religious leaders. They taught as the rabbi who trained them taught. And so, consequently, the law got more complex the older it got. And so what began with ten simple commands, and then those things which were added to it Levitically in the book of Leviticus, became the 613 requirements of a Jewish person in order to keep them in God's good stead. That was from the rabbis. It wasn't from God. So he goes on. Whoever speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, look at what he's saying here. He's basically saying, I'm right, you're wrong. And I'm righteous, and you're unrighteous. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. This is not a good way to win friends and influence people. But it is true. Anybody run into that in your own life as you share the good news of the gospel? You find that people reject it because it's too exclusive and too narrow? I do. I get cards and letters. I can't believe you would say such a thing. I always remind them, uh, I didn't. Jesus did. Matter of fact, I will freely, readily admit, I wish there were another path. Not that I think there is. And that wishing is only because in my humanness, I wish all roads led to heaven. But they don't. So for me to pretend that they do is to lie to people and damn them eternally. So I'll take the shots for telling the truth. That's okay. I'd rather tell the truth and be okay with God than tell an untruth and see someone perish eternally for it. Jesus is making an eternal statement here. Why do you seek to kill me? He's calling them into question. And the people answered, said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. He said, man, you're demon possessed. What? You need to give this up. And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. I do a miracle. And it's referring to the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. I did one, because remember, that was near the temple. They had seen it. Those same people are now wandering around the temple courts. I did one miracle, and you guys are, oh, wow. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if a man receives the circumcision on a Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I healed a man, made him completely well on the Sabbath? You get the double standard there? Here's this poor guy who suffered for nearly 40 years with an infirmity, and Jesus heals him. 
but it's okay for the rabbis to do the work of circumcision on a Sabbath, and they're okay. He's basically saying, what's up, guys? Which way is it? He's calling into question the whole working on... You see, God never said that they could not do any work on the Sabbath. He never said that. All he said was, take the day to rest. He didn't say you couldn't pick up a bundle of sticks and take it into your house. He didn't say you couldn't do a circumcision. He did not say that if there was someone sick, you couldn't help them. He never said those things. That all came from the rabbis. And Jesus is saying, the rabbis are wrong. God was right. You do need to rest on a Sabbath and you do need to honor me. But this whole work thing, that's from you. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge according to righteous judgment. He's saying, look, was it a bad thing to heal this poor man who was suffering? You see, righteous judgment would be rejoicing that this man was healed. And they're all going, you did it wrong and you did it on the wrong day. Can't believe you would do that. I mean, you know you can't lift up anything. You can't do any work. That was work. They got after the man for carrying his bed. He took his bed and walked, right? Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? You're going to see these three groups of people appear out of this passage. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They're all like, man, who is this guy? It's like the rulers are dumbfounded. Well, the rulers are dumbfounded because they know he's right. They knew what the Scripture said. They knew that this was an interpretation of the Scripture that had been leveled on the people and made their life more difficult. It was not what God intended. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Look, they're, they're going, look, he was born in Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth, Nazareth, we're not supposed to know where he's from. That also was not true. If they had read their Bibles, they would have known exactly that he was going to come from Bethlehem. That's where he was born. But they thought he was only from Nazareth. And then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, so Jesus is now going to raise his voice a little bit. This phrase, cried out, means that he kind of begins to use a little bit more volume. More as if he's like, this is the way it is, guys. So for the sake of understanding it, look, you both know me and know where I'm from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Whom you do not know. You realize what he's saying when he says that to a Jewish person? You don't know my father. What was the whole Jewish religion about? You don't know my father? They were the only group of people on the entire earth that claimed to have a relationship with the one true God. And Jesus said, you don't know my father. But I know him. And I am from him. He sent me. Pretty exclusive. And therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was on a heavenly timetable. The hour was not yet, and so they couldn't touch him. 
And many of the people believed him and said, when the Christ comes, he will do more signs than these which this man has, which this man has done. And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And then the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They're already plotting. They're already thinking of his death. They're already planning it. And Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. Now, he gets even bolder. But you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Ow! Imagine saying that. Jesus speaking those words right to him. He's saying, look, you think you know me, but you don't know me. You think the the words that you're reading in what we call the Old Testament, you have on lock, but you don't have a clue what it says. You claim to have the right relationship with God the Father. You can't go to where He is because that's where I'm going. You talk about exclusive. And in case we would be tempted to miss it the first time. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find? You see, they have an earthly view. Well, we'll just hunt you down and kill you. You can't say this kind of stuff. We're not letting you get away with it. Does he intend to go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You stay here, we're killing you, dude. We, we're on you. You're going down. What is this thing that he said? And then they repeat it. Here it is. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You see, as you look at these three groups, you have Jewish leaders, religious leaders, part of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes. He's in the temple itself which could be any part of the temple, all of the various temple compounds, the court of women, the court of Gentile, the court of praise, the very inner court. It it could be anywhere. More than likely, he's in the court of Gentiles because Jesus would want the largest audience. And so he's in earshot of all the rest of these people. They're all flocking around. But there certainly are those who are of the chief priests and the scribes. This is the... He's speaking right at him. He's saying, look, you guys have got it all wrong. The second group is just the common people. They're wandering around everywhere. They've come for the feast. It's a big deal. Many of them being influenced by the prevailing religious attitude of the day. Anybody in your life who's influenced by the prevailing religious attitude of the day, which is that all roads lead to heaven? Jesus is saying all roads don't lead to heaven. He's saying, the doctrine I have came from God the Father. God the Father sent me. You don't believe that I am He, and where I am going, you can't come. That's pretty exclusive. By the time we get to the end of John's Gospel, it's going to get narrowed down, narrowed down further, and finally pinned down to a single verse in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 
you can imagine, they weren't really interested in hearing that. The third group was really those who were the Jewish people who resided in Jerusalem. They were legitimately seeking, but what they were finding was religion. They kept looking, and they were looking for evidence. And so when Jesus does his first miracle, they're like, hmm, maybe. But who's the first ones to come against Jesus? Organized religion. Well, we've been doing it this way for 1,500 years. You see, not much has changed. They kept hunting him down. Here's the truth. Jesus is either who he says he is or he's a liar. And Jesus has declared that he is God's own son. John the Baptist bore witness to the same truth. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is saying, I am the way. He's already painting that picture before he actually speaks the words. So his doctrine was an exclusive doctrine. His credentials were that he's doing these miracles. He's attesting those miracles that God the Father sent him. They're either true or they're not true. When you search the Scriptures, you're going to find that they're true. So his credentials, unlike the rabbis, were from God. Their credentials were from another rabbi. Someone kind of signed off. And so during this time, the most famous rabbi was Gamaliel. And so if you studied underneath him, you were like right up there with God. Now you want to be with God himself. And that comes through Jesus, his son. So his doctrine came direct from the Father. He could claim that authority. Jesus' authority was from God. The rabbi's authority were from other rabbis. And so he basically says, look, try it, test it. I'm going to ask the communion team to begin to come forward. And as they do, they'll pass out the bread and the cup, the bread first and then the cup. And I would simply ask that you would hold uh, both elements and we'll partake towards the end of the service together. And while they're coming, you see the answer to this question that is proposed here. Who is Jesus? That's the debate. Who is this guy? That's the whole line of reasoning in all of these groups of people. These three groups are asking that one central question. Who do you think you are? Who do we think you are? Who do others say you are? That's the three basic lines. The answer in every case, as far as the Scriptures declare, Jesus Christ is God's own Son. Come in human flesh to this earth to give His life a ransom for anyone who will believe. They're saying, well, we didn't see any rabbis sign off on your credentials so that we know who you're from. Very dangerous place 
the test that kills every bit of falsehood, whether it's in your life or my life, the test is who is Jesus? Because that's the entrance exam to heaven. The only entrance exam to heaven is whom do you say the Son of Man is? Who is He? What you have before you is the answer. That's what the elements of communion actually represent. You see, all cults have a false view of who Jesus is. I talk to people all the time, and they'll send me little notes. They'll say, well, you know, I know, I have a Mormon friend, and they, they claim that they're Christians. And I will say to them, you need to ask them the test question. Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, because the problem with a Mormon saying that they're Christians is their own doctrine, their own works, say that Jesus Christ is someone other than whom the Bible says he is. Because in the book of Abraham, there is a picture of Elohim God with his one of many wives on the planet Kolub, which is nearest the throne of God, somewhere in the heavens, having sexual relationships, producing many children, of whom Jesus Christ is one of the many. And so he got the name of the elder brother. That's why when you see the name tags, it says elder so-and-so, because we're all one of God's children, according to their theology. And according to their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation, Jesus is simply one of God's many sons. Your Bible says he is God's only son. The preeminent one, according to the book of Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. That firstborn of all creation came to this earth as Emmanuel that we saw in John chapter 1. God with us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You see the difference? God's got any other sons, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. There's one exclusive Jesus, and that's the Jesus you need to know to go to heaven. That Jesus came to Calvary's cross via six illegal trials that all happened in a matter of about seven hours. Most of them happened at night, which made them illegal by themselves. Jesus was not allowed to have counsel, made it illegal. He is found innocent. Remember this, he was not found guilty. He was found innocent. I find no fault in this man. But because of the uproar amongst these very same religious leaders, and because it was a feast week, Passover, it is our Roman custom to release one prisoner. Pilate even thinks he's going to get Jesus off the hook. What happens? We do not want this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas. So what happens? He's taken into the courtyard of Pilate, tied to a stone post. 
and beaten nearly to death. As the prophet Isaiah said, marred so badly that he was undistinguishable as a human being. Would have been enough to kill you and I. So as you look at that bread, it represents what was done to Jesus externally. That's why the prophet Isaiah said he was beaten, bruised. The chastisement for our peace was put upon him. Were that enough? They took a crown of thorns from the dom tree, which is a type of acacia. The thorns can be two to three inches long. We traveled to Israel, I show you some usually. You can break them off and drive them into wood with a hammer. They're so hard. That's what was beaten onto Jesus' head with the scepter, the rod that they put in his hand after putting a purple cloak on him and mocking him, Behold the King of the Jews! Were that not bad enough, while they were beating him, they asked little jokes like, Who hit you after they covered his head? If you're the Son of God, you ought to surely... Tell us who that is. You see, this is a serious supper. On top of that, after they mock him, as he's led to, forced to carry his own cross, they lead him up to the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull. If it is where we think it is, it's on the northern side of the city of Jerusalem, just outside the city gates. But it was also on the main road that led away from Jerusalem. It would have been where everybody passed by, so much so that Scripture declares that as people walked by, they wagged their tongues at him. It's another way of saying they mocked him openly. While he's on the cross, nails in his hands and his feet. So as you hold that bread you might want to remember what was done for you, for me. Were that not enough? His cry from the cross was, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the cry of a child to his father. Dad, where are you? Father, can't you see what they've done to me? For a moment in time, God the Father took his eyes off of Christ his Son because upon him was heaped your sin and mine. The chastisement for our Peace was put upon him. And so God the Father, for the first time in eternity, could not look on his own son. Praise the Lord, it did not end there. When he cried out to tell us, I, it is finished. That death had a purpose. Every drop of that holy blood represented by the cup, it was spilled on that unholy hill on this wretched planet 
was so that we might be able to believe by faith in the one true God who came to this earth to die in our place so that we could have salvation. So when we remember, that's what we remember. We remember instead of Jeff being nailed to that cross, as should be the case still to this day, my Jesus was nailed to that cross. My Savior died in my place. That one Jesus. There is no other. There can be no other. There will be none after. And it was He who died so that by believing in Him, I could have eternal life. Oh, hallelujah. And praise the Lord for what Christ did on the cross. And so when the ordinance of communion, which came from Jesus, was passed to us, it was His words that we first understand this from. And remember what they are. Apostle Paul just passed it on. He said, on the night that he was betrayed, well, that was going to happen. But before it happened... The very night. Can you imagine now Jesus sitting, that very famous painting by Michelangelo that shows all the disciples, which by the way is inaccurate, but nonetheless representative. So they're seated seated at this table, and there's Judas, the only one able, because he's on the proper side, to dip bread with Jesus. He took the bread, And when he had broke it, he said, take and eat, for this is my body broken for you. Let's partake together. And then after they had fellowshiped for a while, and after Judas had dipped bread with Jesus, after the meal, Jesus took the cup, almost declaring at the same time, this is going to mean more to you tomorrow. But he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And why that was so important is these are 12 Jews. They understood the covenant of Noah. They understood the covenant of Abraham. They understood the Davidic covenant. They understood all these covenants which God had made with the Jewish people. And they were always, I will do this if you will do this. That's why it's a new covenant. That's why Tetelestai matters. It is finished. Takes the cup after supper, saying, this is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. Would you stand and let's close in prayer and then we'll 
go out in a worship song. Father, Father, I want to thank you for me personally, for Jeff, for sending your own son into this world and dying on the cross for me. And Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for fulfilling the will of your Father to do so. I can't imagine what that prayer was like in the garden as those great drops of blood were shed over me, my sin. Thank you for seeing it all the way through. Every lash, every thorn, every bruise, the nails, all of it, Lord Jesus, to say you love us. We thank you for loving us. Lord, we thank you the story doesn't end at the cross. You were raised three days later, and because of it, we also shall be raised. That's why we remember you, Lord. And we declare that you are our Savior. We trust in you. Thank you for forgiving our sin, making us clean. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.